Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Cleansing Protection Magic, binaural production engineer Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in becoming a contributor to this show, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything you need there. And now, without any further ado, our guest for today is Jared Murphy. Thanks for coming on, Jared. Hey, it's so great to be on. It's... uh we're clocking close to the uh, end of the month and heading out to the Grand Canyon. We're coming to fruition finally. That is incredible. So what are you planning for this first trip out there? It's going to be a very serious, well-geared, geared up uh, preliminary expedition to plan uh, safety, uh, route uh ascents and descents for climbing uh the plan is to explore at least on the face uh very suspicious rock cut caverns caves entrances uh not go splunking the issue is the various levels of the canyon 6,000 8,000 15,000 80,000 100,000 years ago would be very different than where they are now and so we are going to be looking for what we already think are and by we i mean rex from leak project uh leak project we uh overlapped between when you and i started this and the genesis of this whole thing was us doing a show and me just you know it was on my radar to go and do because the ge kincaid cave representing whether it was egyptian artifacts and mummies and gold and, and hieroglyphs or not there are too many weird things going on in the Grand Canyon that don't point to a non, uh, uh, either indigenous or tribal or uh, period dynastic people being there in the last just 12,000 years. It, it appears that there is suspicious looking rock cut openings and I, you know, we we're going to go. And so we start looking at, oh, you know, Scott Walter, America on Earth. They were at the uh, edge of the canyon where was a suspected to be the GE Kincaid cave. And well, we have accurate mile markers. We have the right locations. Uh, we have the right uh, audio and video equipment and binoculars and assorted other uh, contacts within some of the uh, indigenous populations that are familiar with the stories and legends and uh, just the area. So we have a different animal now to go and actually interview uh, on site and explore to make sure that we will be able to plan with some expert climbers. I climb, I, I, I but the to secure a route, uh, we're looking at either descending maybe 15, 1800 feet or ascending 2000 feet. It's not the difficulty to, you know, we're not 
for all, anyone out there who's a rock climber, we're not going out to like make a hard route. We're going out there to make a safe route. We're going out there to make a, an ascent that would be a multi-pitch, which means multiple ropes, multiple uh, cammed, nutted, bolted. I mean, just whether it's uh, whatever the methodology we need in order to safely get up to that distance. That's hmm. going to be the goal. And because when we get, so the plan is for a few days, about a week, we're going to be out there and filming and, and interviewing and planning the routes, planning the area, getting the information to the right people who are going to uh, set. The, I mean, it's thousands of dollars of climbing equipment. And once we plan it, the reason it's so important, it's a lot like, it sounds funny, but it's like building a house. We're building a sense and descents, and this might be too much. I mean, wouldn't it be nice to just skip to the part where we found a mummy or found hieroglyphs or what if we find Roman insignias or we find so dynastic stuff? You know, we think from the Templars and the Phoenicians and the Celts and the Egyptians, there's a lot of weird indicators that say all these people made it inland in America and the Grand Canyon. It would be exciting just to find any of those things dynastically. But we're looking for much older, megalithic, high technology, uh, any remnants, not not of the technology maybe, but, well, even the rock cut openings. I mean, that would indicate if we can not identify some miner's old find that, you know, he chiseled out or some, and it would still be exciting. If we have an indigenous find, it would be very exciting. But we are going for what we're focused on is the, rock cut ruins and you know extra power to us if we can hit some hieroglyphs or any kind of paintings or wall art that would all be very exciting but the you know the goal is to hit areas that archaeologists anthropologists it would be very difficult for them to get there's more caves they say in the grand canyon than in carlsbad so we're looking at uh having to navigate a very limited so this is part of the mystery so if we're going to chalk up for all you conspiracy and or mystery hunters here's some of the things that make this whole trip worthwhile just to plan this because a single route you know if we want to hit if we find we have a list of caves that we're suspect but let's just say that five of those caves are together or 20 of those caves are together are we going to be able to make uh is it going to take us a week to get to one is it going to take us four days or three days or two days? Or are we going to be able to set routes and say, well, you know, of these 50 Ks, we could hit 30 in two weeks. Or, you know, this is about planning the man hours to set and ascend or descend to the correct locations. And that might not be possible to hit everywhere that we currently want. So it's very important that as we go for this trip that we plan specifically are we going to you know it's just not realistic we we think this is the most promising location and we'd rather get there to prove or disprove or search further on the ge Kincaid thing or it's like boy but these other 10 caves look very very interesting technologically and boy wouldn't it be neat to just if we could reach all 10 uh maybe we should do the 10 instead of the one so really deciding that as a group is part of the process 
And that's why this trip is important, is to be able to get the topography down, not just from any, we have the government geo-surveys surveys on the topographical maps, and uh, there's a tremendous amount of information about the Grand Canyon that's very difficult. But now getting back on some of the weird things about the canyon. One, uh, Dawson's Cave is very famous. It's that and Guano Point over on the south rim. Uh, where the skywalk is that people usually go to from Vegas, you know, usually, you know, two, two and a half hours and you can be at the skywalk and you can go to Guano Point, which is where they set up a mine that was mining guano. They thought maybe there was over a hundred million dollars worth of guano. Turned out that there was maybe 10, 15 million and they had set up a cable car that was literally traversing the entire Grand Canyon, the width of it at this point. And it is at this point where Guano Point is near the skywalk it's over 5,000 feet deep or close to it it's very deep very far away and they had a cable car running across the entire canyon to mine back guano and it brought full crews 24 hours a day and then allegedly a fighter pilot of course clips the cable they decide it's too much work too much money to get it all set back up and they decided to drop and abandon the cave now there is Here's our list of conspiracies. One is that Guano Point was not about guano, but it was about excavating other mysterious finds within Guano Point. That's actually the newest thing I've heard in mm -hmm. the last few weeks. Uh, but uh, we know that there's also the Dawson's Cave, which is a very big cave. There's rock cut steps to it that were not done by anyone in particular. It was part of this uh, list of early explorations. And what's interesting about Dawson's Cave is that there are a few caves. What makes them very suspicious is that they've been gated off and it's allegedly because there are protected bats. And here's the thing, Jen Deo, my co-author on, uh, on the next few books here, there are no protected bats in Arizona. There are no protected bats in this area of the Grand Canyon, not within a hundred miles, not literally not within a five state area. There it just isn't anything. So, if you're going to make up a story and half-ass it, they've done a great job. Uh, yeah, they caged off and padlocked. You can walk up if you do get in the canyon. And if you do it by boat or if you're doing it on your own, et cetera, et cetera. You can go to Dawson's Cave. It's, it's, uh, you can beach. You can basically walk up to it. You just can't go in it because they're protecting bats. And that's a straight-up lie. That there, there are no bats to protect. But it's not the only cave that seems to indicate that. And there are different points in the Grand Canyon that are named for Egyptian, uh, you know, the Temple of Osiris. Or There's all these different points. And originally, my thought was that, and we talked about this, that they're strictly there because, uh, you know, romantic period. We found King Tut. We found Machu Picchu. Archaeologists are just all things Egyptian. End of the 1800s, 1900s, you know, everything's Egyptian. So maybe they just did it because it was just a fun way to name things. But then come to find that it's the indigenous people that did some of the naming. And they're using Egyptian words. That's quite odd. And so we have a very, very sketchy splunking map. And this is something that, oh, you know, there's all these surveys of the Grand Canyon. Yeah, and there were a lot of 49ers uh, for those that aren't big fans of Gold Rush. Back in the uh, period that they were rushing to California for the gold rush, some miners went to the Grand Canyon and they were looking for other 
potential mother loads. So there are caves that were made in contemporary times of men looking for uh, gold or other precious metals or what could be a profitable mine. So you have all those guys burrowing in. Then we have a number of indigenous uh, people, natives that for the, for in quote, standard academic time, you have 12,000 years of them living in this area. So could they have carved out a number of spaces for shelters? Yes. But we have, like when we've talked to Michael Cremo, there are uh, way at Laco, Mexico, northern Mexico, we're talking uh, it, actual anatomically correct humans, campfires, campsites, and, and full village areas that are three, you know, 300 to 500,000 years old. Uh, there's a number of indications that show that South, Central, and North America have been occupied way beyond the standard academic model. So we have the Pueblo, the Anasazi. There's a number of uh, different types of Indian, Indians that we think of as, oh, those are American Indians, and they, they live in the Southwest, and, oh, they built in the Grand Canyon, and, you know, Montezuma's Castle will be a stop for me. Uh, just, it's, you know, it's definitely a later period, but it's still very old. It's very clear that the Aztecs and the Mayans may have made it this direction. And definitely the Mayans and, and the Chinese definitely were on South America, Central America, and the California coast. We have clear indications of this from walls that were built to linguistics so and genetics. So there's a lot of positive proof about the occupation of the Grand Canyon well beyond native or indigenous people, however you want to look at it. It's not just, oh, Pueblo Indians and, you know, adobe brick buildings. And, you know, that's, that's, that's true, but it's not the only group of people that occupied the great expanse of the Grand Canyon area. We're talking over 400 miles. And... Uh, depths up to 6,000 feet. And over the course of not one or two, but 300,000 plus years, uh, when you talk about every level that the Colorado River would have been at, you know, we automatically think, you know, primitive people, you know, they're not going to try to, for the most part, get up a 300 foot wall to build a city. We think that they're going to do it at an obtainable level. So, low-hanging fruit, you know, you plan where the river was in reference to where we think the openings are and were they built by these people or do they represent a much older megalithic society? That is what's exciting. That, to me, is some of our holy grail. Uh, you, you, Did you hear yet about the, uh, you know, it just got, just whisper announced a week ago now about the uh, silicrete findings of most of the uh, stones at Stonehenge are a concrete. Have you heard about that yet, Gary? No. Uh, this is the biggest deal in a, in a long time. Uh, what happened was, is in 1958, of course, before they stopped doing, you know, while they were still possibly accidentally doing real science, uh, what happened was, is they did a core sample. And it's essentially undestructible quartz crystal uh, concrete. And this is incredibly important because 
this represents after this journal released their findings. I mean, electron microscopy, detailed, detailed work to get uh, uh, this evidence that shows, I'm gonna send it to you here. It's incredibly important because this, this is yet again, uh, oops, sorry, don't screen share, here we go. Uh, what we're gonna do is when you look at indestructible, I mean, from the term of undestructible concrete, uh, what are we talking about? I mean, other than if we're going to have something that is basically indestructible, be weathered over periods of, that's just a quick article for you to take a look at while I'm talking, but this is hugely important. And it's information that just came out. And it's so, so, so important because we are talking about the understanding that this is uh, uh, the antiquity, the, the weathering that's involved in this process to get Stonehenge to look like what it does is incredibly significant. And that really does say something mm -hmm. about I'm going to send you the actual journal article also. So the journal article for everyone listening is available online. It's usually within the news stories. It was the journals.plos.org, uh, plos.org. Uh, but this is the actual report. The study just came out. And because the core sample, which was done in 1958, they were trying to figure out how to, well, there was a number of things they were doing about, hey, what's the stone made out of? How do we preserve it? Uh, how do we, you know, they, they were just dumbly drilling out a core. Mm -hmm. They weren't doing it, you know, for any other reason. So here's the actual journal report. And so I'm I recently, I recently had an archaeologist on who was an expert on Stonehenge, Maria, oh, so Wheat Maria Wheatley. Yeah. And there's a lot of people have written about it. Uh, there's I, whole books. In fact, I had even suggested, you know, maybe doing a show with you and her. Oh, that'd be great because this Silicrete report. Yeah, uh, maybe I'll send her an email. That'd know, be cool. As if she wanted to come on and discuss that, because that's really interesting. That sort of changes. Oh yeah. I, I mean, that's that's high technology there. Not that I said I told you so. To the world, <laughs> but I literally write about. Uh, advanced ancient geopolymers and again these are the inventor of modern geopolymers is dr joseph davidovitz who i have tried to get on a show but he has done reports on pumapunku uh he wrote a book and it theorized that maybe the whole great pyramid was geopolymer turns out that it's not but guess what it has patching of geopolymer backed up by an egyptologist from egypt and a yale scientist so real work was done that in the course of them being energy frequency or functioning machines, at some point they needed patching, whether they got hit by a meteor or blew something off the side of a, they've had geopolymer patching. But Tiwanaku in South America, uh, there are a number of sites that show signs of not just stone softening, but technology we don't we can't even conceive of it so to crush up quartz to crush up the combination of crystalline material to make a silicrete 
to create an almost indestructible concrete for what essentially is support columns. In my opinion, the megalithic builders were building for buildings that connected energetically, i.e., whether it's not hot and cold, but sending and receiving information also simultaneously through ancient uh, engineered soils, me seismic metamaterials, which can be nano in size, could be as big as a giant stone sphere. So you have this quartz crystal silicrete that makes up an indestructible column of a structure that is long abandoned. And by abandoned, what are we talking about? If this is basically an indestructible material, how many tens of thousands of years did it have to sit there to get as weathered as it looks, right? And then to be abandoned till somebody, and again, we like to romanticize the Druids and uh, King Arthur and Merlin and uh, the idea that Stonehenge was built as a functionary as it is, as it is onto its own, that it wasn't like the standing stones of Karnak that are, that run spances along the French coast or uh, any dolmen or Sarzen, like the ones where they're, they're called the Sarzens, the uh, stones at Stonehenge. The majority of them are made of this material. So we have a society very advanced, loses all their stuff for very exciting and terrifying and exciting reasons. Gets abandoned thousands for thousands of years. At some point, indigenous, local, dynastic peoples, Egyptians, Olmecs, Toltecs, and in this case, pre-Vikings, uh, Phoenicians. We know that there are ruins in Ireland that indicate the Egyptians were in Ireland. No problem. We know the Egyptians were likely in Egypt or uh, Egypt. <laughs> we know that they traveled as far as Australia. And so, and phonetically, I mean, as far as language goes, there are indications that they made it to the Grand Canyon. So now here we are. And what's really exciting about this again is the antiquity. It is, it was pointed out to me and it was in a Brian Forrester video. I really liked it that, there was a gal, an expert, and there's a, one of the sarsens, you know, you can see through it, but it was supposed to hold up one of the lentil tops. So first, some indigenous people found these support columns, and they moved them into uh, the position that we see them as Stonehenge. Does it have to do with the stars and the alignments and all that? Yeah, but remember... A bunch of guys in the 50s, literally with berets and pipes and smoking cigarettes. and I mean, it's like a movie. I mean, Jack <laughs> Lemmon should have been in it. I mean, it's crazy. Oh, man, I'm dating myself. But they interpreted what Stonehenge should look like. And they chose what pieces to put back up together. Stonehenge today is not what it even looked like when it was abandoned and found. For everyone out there listening find lithographs, find early stenciled uh, drawings, any early archaeological report of the site, even romanticized. And uh, for any of you out there that can hit an English manor, literally in the English or Scottish or uh, somewhere in Europe, if you can, if you ever see a painting of Stonehenge 
or any of the henches, any of the stone, these large megalithic superstructure, highly advanced blocks being reused for primitive cultures. If you see any of their original conditions in a romanticized photo, uh, sorry, painting, take a picture, get a photo of any painting or drawing that you see of the mysterious Stonehenge, you know, uh, if it's labeled or unlabeled, if you're at the Louvre, if you're in Paris and, and you're walking through and you see anything that looks like henges, you might be seeing, at least in, in, in C2, you're looking at, uh, you're definitely looking at possibly the unmolested abandonment from its last use. It doesn't mean it's the original position. That's the blurred line that everyone gets into the oldest and this is how easter island comes into this as an example the oldest moai the heads the oldest ones are made of basalt they're highly polished they're very complex they are just the finishing on them is spectacular there's only 150 the rest all the moai that come later are less advanced soft stones like moa's level hardness four but not basalt. And three of the original really advanced ones ended up in England in the British Museum. Not the 60-foot ones that, that Thor Heyerdahl started uh, uncovering when he, you know, and uh, Mary uh, uh, Till's, oh boy, I, I'm so sorry, I'm blanking on Mary's last name, I'm so sorry, but she heads, uh, did the first scientific research of the Moai, but what you have is an island with polygonal masonry just like a great just like the great pyramid just like machu picchu and sakse waman and oliati tambo you have megalithic polygonal masonry giant stone spheres and, and and that's on the island and you have these basalt very complex very well done early moai and then later you have a society coming along and maybe not one maybe two maybe three maybe four and all finding the abandoned remnants of the prior society's attempts to mimic what they found, which was in basalt, but they do mm -hmm. it in uh, pumice. They do it in uh, softer lava rock. And then here we are with Stonehenge. Uh, you know, they're obsessed about finding the quarry. Oh my gosh, we're looking at a silicrete. We're looking at a geopolymer. Just admitting that there is the, uh, there's a pond, there's a bay in, the Mediterranean that also shows science. It's like a Teflon. There are material science researchers in Europe willing to do the work that unfortunately, at least in America and the English, basically this, there's this handshake of deny it, decline it, ignore it, only find, like Michael Kramer said, find theories, find facts that only fit our theories. So now we have other institutions thank god around the world doing this research and this core sample is a holy grail having them do this work and the indications of the complexity of this stone gives us an idea of the potential antiquity given that it is an almost indestructible silicate this these beams were made by very advanced techniques and their choices in the materials. I mean, we could geek out about this for a couple episodes. So we should talk to, <laughs> we should definitely talk to your, uh, 
or Stonehenge expert. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to hear what she has to say about this. I think I do think this is going to piss a lot of researchers off that have been adamant about, you know, you got the Druids and period people finding, uh, in quotes, quarries to add on to and mimic what was found at Stonehenge. So I think you have this constant blurred line and fog of war of dynastic peoples uh, adapting, modifying, repairing Stonehenge and other henges and standing stones and dolmens and veneers. I mean, there's a million names for ancient giant superstructure support beams that got dragged around and set up for primitive, uh, again, every period of human history is important. But that's not the original purpose. I mean, once upon a time, for instance, Chernobyl was Chernobyl. If you do yoga there for a thousand years and you feel really connected to the earth when you do it, after a thousand years of ritual, that's a thing. You know, we're part of a collective human consciousness. We have Mm -hmm. a genetic memory. A thousand years of yoga is still important, but it's not what the site was. So as important as the last 6,000, 8,000 years have been, what was Stonehenge's stones doing originally? Where were they dragged a hundred feet to where they are now? Were they dragged a mile? Uh, sorry for all you in Europe. Are they kilometers away? Are they, what are they originally? And we want to be respectful of every generation, but this is so damn exciting and I sound way too boring. I feel like I could put people to sleep right now. For those listening. <laughs> so so back to the Grand Canyon part of this. Yeah. Um what are we going to do if we are confronted with some type of authority that says, No guys, you can't go there. Document, document, document. Who's the authority and why? And one of the things that I want to keep pushing, if you want to know the game plan, it's this simple. Name, rank, serial number, why can't we go? What is it? Is it on on uh, native land? Is it, is it, you know, is it First Nation? Is it uh, government land? Why, why, who is in charge of the permits? And to put a light on it. This isn't going to be friendly. I don't mean to make it adversarial. I'm just saying that uh, we do a lot of shows and we're going to make it really clear that the whole uh, tap dance on this is not acceptable anymore. We have questions. We have the people. We have the ability to go. Uh, You know, for Scott Walters' America Unearthed episode where they showcase this, they talk about the group that got climbers and headed down and that they were approached by mysterious black helicopters and uh, I'm a little confused as to why the climbers got stuck where they got stuck. And I understand it was very hot. It was very difficult. It's very difficult to do these kind of routes. But I think it's possible for us to climb. But currently I know that there are no splunking permits. You know, you can't, can't go in any caves. And there are rumors for those conspiracy. I didn't even finish the conspiracy and the mystery list. One is that there are multiple entrances and exits to and from the underground society that currently works and or doesn't with the American military. And or there are ancient and new 
entrances that connect to the underground grid of freeways and roads between uh, northwest United States and Central and Latin America. So there, there is a, again, rumors galore that the uh, connectivity of the space is also not just related to either indigenous or dynastic work, but that it does have to do with high technology, that there are underground systems that do connect to an existing, but that, that there's, I have no evidence of that. That's, that's all that exciting kind of out mm-hmm. there uh, hearsay about, um, you know, we're getting into, you know, some super soldier talk. Yeah. I, I was interviewing somebody just a couple of days ago. I forget who it was, but, and I had mentioned, you know, about the Grand Canyon thing. And he said that there was some kind of evidence that they some of the caves in the Grand Canyon went all the way to Canada, like up in Nova Scotia. I do think that uh, we are very... Uh, so when I started doing my research a long time ago, and I, I want to give people a quick overview of... Uh, there's a man named Klaus Donna, and there's some... Uh, detailed and vague information that he gives about access to someone with satellite access that allows him to penetrate further into the earth and it allows him to then locate cave systems uh, treasures etc and that information aside early on I started learning about some of the underground systems that travel our country that have been built by the military uh, roads, free, freeways, multi-laned, large underground stuff. But uh, part of it had come up because of Dr. Samir Osmanigic's work and the Bosnian Pyramid and the underground tunnel systems that are there. The issue is, okay, where all do they go on Earth? It does appear that the United States, irrelevant to modern military systems and what they're digging you know, in Nevada, in the mountains, NORAD, etc., that there was in great antiquity an advanced race that had massive underground systems that Eric von Danigan invited Buzz Aldrin to adventure into in Bolivia. I mean, that that's film. That made international news. And that was a long time ago. I mean, he had written Chariots of the Gods and had become very famous because of that. But here are the same stories and the same, uh, you know, situation being noticed in not just Bosnia, but and not just because it was under one pyramid, but the underground cities in Turkey, there seems to be uh, firsthand accounts of miners running into mines that there are deep, very not recent, but also very uh, accurate, precisioned, tunnel systems that are run into by miners they're frequently closed off but the but the first-hand accounts get to us and it does seem to be that if you're a human society here's some common sense if you're going to live through multiples we have nine known super volcanoes that you know yellowstone's a super volcano uh toba i you know trying to make people more aware of this that's seventy-five thousand years ago plus or minus a thousand years Currently, based on evidence, we have a supervolcano that 
basically nuclear winter the whole planet and that the human population of in quotes the breedable human population slipped to as little as 2000 pairs so i don't know why they say that it slipped to 4000 human beings to 52000 human beings is what they are guessing but we don't have a full grave list and you know sedimentary nuclear dna testing is going to fix all this and it's been coming it's not like it's brand new it's been something that's been going on for 10 years but sticking on topic the reality is that if you've lived on the planet for tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of years you've lived through multiple super disasters and it makes uh, we know egypt we know talking from mohammed ibrahim that there is massive tunnel systems under Egypt. You can go anywhere from Aswan Quarry to all of, you know, the Great Pyramid in tunnel systems. Not dynastic peoples. Again, dynastic Egyptians, the ones we call King Tut, they adapted and mimicked a society that had abandoned and or lost everything that's there under the sand. And a lot of what's said is Egypt is 90% or 95% now under the sand. They're not just saying it's buried. They're saying tunnel systems, not just tiny tunnel systems, very large tunnel systems. That's very, very, very important that we understand that the entire planet seems to have a well-established, just like indigenous stories in the West of the United States, that the ant people, in quotes, came and brought everyone underground because of a great disaster around 12,000 years ago. I don't think it's the first time. So, yeah, we have a massive multiple cultural, not just references, but all of these tidbits that have made it into public airwaves and space that show, without a doubt, there are precision. And again, we leave it by saying mysterious or we say, oh, that's one of a kind or isn't that a mystery? There's so many ways we shirk off the truth of the fact that somebody way more advanced than we are found it necessary to build an extensive worldwide underground network that includes punching through mountains, by the way. I mean, Brian Forster has video and is constantly reminding us that there are the same rock-cut precision passageways through mountains. There's no way the Aztecs cut them, but they're through the mountains. They're in the highlands. They're, you know, you have Lake Titicaca, in Peru and Bolivia up 12 and a half thousand feet. But through some of those ranges, you have basically pathways and freeway systems that are running through some of the hardest stone on earth in a very precision way. And they were again, adapted by the Aztecs. Do you think any, any of these subterranean systems or maybe even cities underground are still inhabited yeah so that brings us to the it's not aliens uh worse it's us i think that the good majority of any non-military ufo represents the 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 restored recovered of the last disastered remnants of a more advanced human population i i don't think that they're now there's lots of stories of people listening that know about we can just start throwing them down reptilians and grays and lumerians and there's this vernacular that's been developed in the club of ufologists where, well, this is what I saw. And the problem is there's, we can get into all the reasons why it's suspect, but who's to say that the individual eyewitness accounts by very credible 
non-alien people just they know what they saw they're standing by it it does them no good who's to say that they didn't see a reptilian and a gray and a lemurian or whatever you want to call it or a dozen other ones the reason we assume that they're from somewhere else is because they don't look like us and then they say they're from somewhere else a how do you know they're telling the truth b you and i can now buy a gene crisper and do horrible and amazing and crazy Frankenstein things in our own garage. That's terrifying. But a highly advanced human society that's specializing in their technology with biofrequency uh, machines and weapons and uh, having technology that can function with the mind's eye. Uh, we have that in F-22 fighter jets now. So why on earth would we assume that when you have an encounter, you're dealing with people from another planet when what you're really dealing with is advanced ancient humans that have no desire for you to know who and what they are. Because if we ever activate our third eye again, if we ever become not 10 or 15% conscious, but 100% conscious, and we continue even in this phase of redeveloping superhuman abilities, like what Wim Hof and Stieg Severinsen and all these other people, uh, these different various really incredible abilities, if we were to connect back to the earth and, and, we're able to re-engineer the technology, would we find ourselves in a position again to come face-to-face with these underground populations, these UFOs that constantly go underwater and in lakes and in all these other locations? Is it possible that these people uh, have something to atone for, have something to answer to? That's the thing that I think would be very upsetting is hey, we've had the cure for cancer for like ever. Uh, well, we could live indefinitely. Uh, so we have various levels of uh, conspiracy or... And it, conspiracy denotes... I really want to start taking back that the word conspiracy denotes a lack of truth or something you should disbelieve. The truth is we know that the governmental system of the world is not one that we're fully aware of. There are organizations that are operating at the same 10 to 15% consciousness we are, and they interfere with our knowledge base and what we learn, et cetera, et cetera. The British Museum, the Smithsonian interfere, et cetera, et cetera. But these clandestine organizations are interfering at levels that I don't think are coherent. And all of it serves, well, a small fragment of survivors that, again, if you pick out all social media, and you take up all the skills on the planet, you think, just randomly take all those skill sets and stick them on a cruise ship. And they're the last of all of humanity. They're the only people who make it underground. How long would it take them for them to redevelop the technology they're even aware of? It would take them a really long time. And ultimately, when they're able to uh, lock the weapons controls uh, of an F-22 and leave their uh, weapon screen at Mach 24 and do it simultaneously with, you know, there's clearly uh, a desire to keep us and them separate. So what does it look like when we can meet them face to face and we meet them on our terms and we find out, yeah, look, we're really sorry about this, but yeah, it was about the last big hit was Toba. And, you know, we all, we were, we were taken aback and 
you know, so many thousands of us made it underground. So many thousands of us didn't get along or hundreds. So many of us thought, hey, we're going to go in a different direction this time. We don't have a worldwide population anymore. Uh, there wasn't enough of us to evolve beyond it. And so now, uh, well, you know, you guys on the planet, uh, we never thought that you'd breed with Denisovan and Neanderthals. And, and, and when I say that, the automatic assumption is, hey, uh, they're primitive and they're in loincloths and they're Cro-Magnon. Like, you know, Neanderthals are always drawn like they're stupid. They had denser bones, more muscle, and they had a larger cranial capacity than us. And so we, we really paint this picture that they were stupid or less, but yet we know even in standard academia that they all bred together, that Denise Van Neanderthal and a, in quotes, mystery 14% genetic pattern of a completely anatomically correct human that we all bred together. And, and, and they're willing to say that it was 60,000 years ago. But I think under the table, if we look at the math, I think Toba going off and either everyone being abandoned or worse, a segment of a very advanced human population thought, oh, you know what, we'll make or we'll engineer Neanderthals or Denise Van or fill in the blank. They'll take care of the rest of the human population that we've always left alone. You know, we'll We'll get back out on the surface of the planet. We'll deal with it again. We don't have any eyes on that, except that we have Rackus and the elongated skull people all over the earth that not a single university will test, and it's got to be done. It's got cranial capacity, naturally born. Uh, are, are they the hidden in plain sight, obvious, advanced superhuman ancestor that we once were or all are? Are we derived from them? Are we just all what's left of the population on the planet just breeding together for sure survival. Uh, we, we are going to put eyes on that eventually through sedimentary nuclear DNA testing and our paleo records going to get more and more detailed and the reality of or saying directly to the people they encounter. Oh yeah. You know, you're a smart guy. We abducted this physicist finally and, you're very credible. So I'm Thorlon from blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we come in peace and we, and I mean, are they arrogant enough? I mean, is there, I, I've joked in the past that, you know, if it sounds like they're talking about Star Trek or Deep Space Nine or Stargate, that's because the people are, that the people, us, are making it up. What if it's even worse? What if these Rick and Morty like multiverse traveling, uh, hidden, you know, gotta gotta fix my car battery, which is really a multiverse. Are we uh, dealing with humans that present themselves as alien, and the stories they come up with, including the plots of Deep Space Nine, and we're part of a federation? What if it's all actually their idea because they really think we're going to buy it? And again, when we're fully conscious, or even like at Wait, maybe maybe I won't even take that. What if you know? What if it's only going to take twenty percent consciousness or twenty five? What if twenty five gets us clicked back into ancient engineered soil, gets us uh, re-engineering polygonal masonry and energy frequency? Because we think that this energy and frequency stuff, uh, it would be fascinating to have a silicrete uh, building that is basically a solid state hard drive. 
uh, connecting all of us with our pineal glands and our, our feet literally connected to the earth, connected to soils, and the slivers of truths in the Bible of us talking to animals. And what if there was a period where we were taking in the information of the entire solar system, of the entire galaxy, of the entire universe, as we travel, people don't think about the fact that most satellite images, when we say we've discovered fill in the blank planet, or we might've found a Dyson sphere or fill in the blank. It's all radio frequency technology, which means that what that, what that means for people who don't follow uh, satellites, the Hubble telescope can take a picture of something, but there's a point where we can't see it. So we do radio frequency uh, telescoping. Mm -hmm. What that means is every picture, when they say they discover something, you see a picture of it is an artist interpretation. Radio frequency does not provide a photo of an object. It is a radio frequency pattern. What if all these buildings of the ancient past, these giant megalithic, whether it's uh, the gridded network of pyramids, our engineered soils, this entire planet was a terraform system processing like a giant electrofrequency telescope, all the information it could gather as we travel through the universe. And in a fully conscious world, information you don't need, maybe it's filtered by the bacterial fungal networks through the tree systems, through the uh, lesser, not as conscious creatures, but all said and done, we are dealing with a society that was fully conscious capable of being aware of not just what they're doing here or in a solar settled, you know, let alone galactic uh, human population. Are we talking about a society that was functioning uh, at a level of indefinite lifespans, curing simplistic things like disease. And now that's been reduced to one smaller high tech population and whether they're directly manipulating uh, the gray state that runs things now, uh, giving them caveats and carrots of greed, they're not even fully informed, I don't think. I don't think that's even the case. I think we've been running across all these these different clandestine organizations or, or the, you know, the big uh, classic example of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And, mm -hmm. you know, we have top people working on it. The Ark of the Covenant ends up in a box in a warehouse full of other boxes. I mean, could it be as simple as that? But there are too many people now, too many shows like what we're doing, uh, the work to get out there and expose the physical location, like you said, comes back to if they're, if they're saying, well, we don't want you to go look there. Uh, we're going to put a name on that organization. We're going to put a date and a time, and we're going to start mapping and making available all of these uh, resources for any adventurer or researcher to know where to go, what to do, how to find it, where to start the research again. And I think that's important that we make sure that it's out there for people to know uh, where we're not supposed to go or where we can go. But in this case, where we're going has been established already. There hasn't been any blocks. We are going to the Grand Canyon. We are going to where we think the GE Kincaid Cave is. I think, uh, I think you know, when we get this preliminary expedition planned uh, for the, I mean, when we get the research to plan for the time that we're going to be there, we should probably be inviting listeners or, or at least uh, 
Gary, we should be picking up a few people that would uh, uh, want to come just for the, you know, the tour of it instead of touring an established uh, Actually, find. I, I recently talked to a documentary maker. He he's based some does documentaries. And uh, depending on scheduling, he might be interested in actually coming and filming the whole thing. Well, then, you know, we were looking at, uh, the, you know, it's funny because we were, Rex and I were looking at filming it ourselves. And then it was like, he's got a, a, a pro that we we're like, well, maybe we should pay someone to come out. But the reality was that this is the preliminary look. Maybe he wants to come with the plan, or maybe he wants to wait for the full expedition. No, he, would, he would have to wait for the. It would have to be planned pretty far in advance. Yeah, to come for the full. No, expedition. I'm all for it. I'm all for it because I think there's something in it. I mean, you and I have been planning this for a long time, and I think that this is uh, plenty of gold in it. It's it's even what we're going to learn. I can't stress enough. Even what we're going to learn about the process to get there. To get to these locations, GE Kincaid. I mean, let's leave everybody with this: GE Kincaid was, if true, and no matter what, the Grand Canyon was truly explored by early early adventurers who got in a canoe. They didn't have rafts or whitewater rafting for funsies. They didn't have motorboats. They paddled their butts uh, down and up that river, and they found locations. And in this particular case, G.E. Kincaid said that he saw from a distance an anomaly staining that made him feel that that was a place of interest. And according to him, he ascended a very difficult but hikeable, so an intermediate to advanced level hike, which means advanced or intermediate means you could fall and kill yourself (laughs) in a nutshell. But he made it up there and he found this cave. Just getting these kind of trips on the books, I think, is a paradigm shift for those that are looking to travel, who are uh, looking for a little more adventure. There's a lot of really incredible climbers and 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 adventurous people. They're looking for a challenge, and, and right now their dare is to do something for adrenaline alone. And this is a way to further our information and society that I think an armchair academic. Uh, and there are many discerning, intelligent uh, people who don't get out in the field, but you got to get out in the field. You got to do the hands-on work. And for those that can't, okay, but for those of you out there who can and can gather information and get it to the light of day for all of us to take a look at, I mean, I do think that a revolution in archaeology is upon us with nuclear sedimentary testing, with the material sciences and geologists finally getting involved with what never should have been left with societal anthropologists. I mean, you just don't, you just don't build a skyscraper with anthropologists and archaeologists. You do it with engineers and machinists and you do it with a design build and, and, you know, you do it with people who have our backgrounds and my background and, Mm -hmm. and, and, and then, you know, for a discerning mind to all of us, you know, to take all the information and look at it as a group and individually, that's what's important. We all have to be ready to be wrong. We all have to be ready for what we're going to find. And I don't think anymore we have to wait for uh, an academic institution that's sleeping on 
permits, sleeping on uh, facts, and we don't. It's just I don't have a lifetime to wait for them to uh, want or desire to sort it out. We're going to do it. So let's say we go out there and we find something that changes everybody's view on history, human origins, whatever. Do you think that there will be pushback from academia, government, or maybe uh, the beings that or civilization that we actually discover to continue to hide that existence of evidence? I think that's what's happened all along. And then they handle each bit that's found that they didn't, mind you, recover themselves. Because I, I do think that the earth was abandoned and it was manipulated for quite a period. So I do I do think there's resistance like that. But then there are times where whether it was in the past, it was religious organizations. Mm -hmm. And the largest one in the world was the Catholic. But that's not true. That's the largest one in the Western world. So I'm going to take that back. In the Eastern world, there have been other powerful uh, non-governmental organizations. And throughout, we've been building, adapting. I think naturally indigenous people just by re-adapting pyramids and megalithic structures, they automatically accidentally hid a lot of information and things because, well, they built on top of it. Yes. <laughs> and they weren't, you know, they weren't digging for the, the good stuff. So I do think in the period of time, uh, post-Mount Toba, pre-Yunker Dryas, you have advanced survivors finding and picking up very advanced technology as they could. But then you have these dynastic peoples uh, already adapting and, or settling. But then you, have, then you have the Yunker Dryas, you have another hard hit. But then we see the Sumerians and the Harapen and the, the other post-megalithic cultures uh, finally settling about eight, 9,000 years ago. Now, according to the Egyptians, they've had a king's list of 36,000 years. According to the Sumerians, they've been around 214,000 years. So if it wasn't Mount Toba, if it wasn't the Younger Dryas, so the biblical flood, and then if it wasn't Super Volcano 75,000 years ago, well, what happened 220 or 250,000 years ago? Are we really, 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 really off in looking at the disaster that really set everything back? And again, all the surviving technology is really all that's left are these uh, advanced geopolymers, small nano parts like the, uh, the little screws and the bolts that were found in the Ural Mountains, the gold uh, bits or the aluminum found in Europe that's uh, thousands of years old. The reality is that maybe most of it was taken, the rest buried under indigenous people. And now there are some things that they, they just, there's all these examples of we find and then it's shrugged off as a mystery. So uh, maybe best case scenario is I find something, uh, Rex and I find something, or the guys, you know, we as a collective, by the way, it's not I, it really is, it is a collect, we are not getting to a single point in these caves the momentum to do this entire thing. It started in Genesis with us and our conversation. By the time everyone involved participates to get us in front of a single rock cut opening where we look at it and go, holy crap, 
This is a ancient rock cut opening that no one's been in. And, and, and even cooler, it has some uh, period hieroglyphs in it. Uh, would that be almost bad, though? I mean, think about it. It's like we have this, oh, man, this looks like a cave that got cut. Uh, it looks just like Stonehenge, the lentiline or whatever. It looks like it was cut like 50,000 or 40,000 or 30,000 or 20,000 years ago. But then we find Egyptian hieroglyphs in it that says, you know, Amenhotep was here. And, <laughs> uh, you know, God forbid, because then then you have the misinformation campaign. Then it's like, oh, yeah, well, okay, fine. It's Egyptian. That, the, the, there's so many layers to it. Then it's, oh, uh, yeah, it's Egyptian. Oh, oh, okay. So you're going to admit to that now, you jerks. And it's like, on one hand, we should be excited because that means uh, ge genetic information that shows the Phoenicians are part of indigenous people, Vikings, Templars, Celts. Uh, they'll admit all that finally. And then we see all that shit. That's exciting that we can finally start dealing with, you know, Roman hordes of stuff that, you know, author Dave Brody found, researcher author Dave Brody found, uh, or put together to compile, uh, you know, the fictional work Romerica. Uh, but there's lots of other researchers doing all this work. So if we find something that they finally have to make an admission on, it'll be a partial truth with more lies. So they'll just say, ooh, look at the Egyptians, look at the Egyptians. Oh, wait. Oh, and, and when we really get close to going, here's a great example. Let's say we find the identical silicrete uh, in the cave that behind the hieroglyphs there is a more ancient writing on a more finished surface and it appears to be a layered stone wall and there's just a small section of it left but it's clearly 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 super advanced geopolymer uh, watch them magically find the GE Kincaid inventory of Egyptian stuff <laughs> I mean, you've, you're laughing. Everyone for everyone listening. I, 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 I can't. I can't imagine them doing that. I, I think they're just going to try everything they can to discredit whatever we find. Well, right, but part. I think part of the suave, uh, sophisticated. I can hope for the way they try to misdirect is with partial truths. Like, yeah, you know, we have found very fractional. We're still declining it, or we're denying it and declining it. And we're going to discredit you, but we're also going to partially do it by just this fractional truth. We're going to admit some truth of the Egyptian find or some like they'll they'll misdirect with partial truths. So that's the best I would hope for unless they straight up go, OK, fine, you caught us. You're right. You know, <laughs> if it wasn't for you dastardly kids. We would have got away with it. <laughs> you know, maybe. Maybe we could, you know, would that be great at the end of the episode? <laughs> Scooby Doo this. Oh, yes. It's like, Scooby Doo. And then it's like, you know, we, we really find the Egyptian stuff and they just zoinks. Oh. <laughs> um, you know, that, that would be great. Uh, I don't see them doing that. Uh, and like I said, my, I'm optimistic that not in the discrediting, we're, you know, they'll give us a partial truth. They'll give us a bone that way. And then there's too many independent researchers and there's thousands of followers now and the people listening, they know better. You know better that you're listening. And if something happened to us, God forbid, but 
you hear the denial, you hear the partial truth. There's enough people with good listening ears that they're starting to see it and hear it. And not it's not about belief. It's just about discerning through the BS. And part of the discerning is, are you hearing a partial truth? Are you hearing a partial truth that's covering a full truth? Uh, is the misinformation of, you know, disbelieve or look over here is does it have one of those kernels in it of truth or does it have a full truth like is it so dead on they dump something like you know like gary's saying here i i I don't know if they would ever say oh yeah look uh oops we found the entire egyptian list and it turns out we did know of someone that worked for the Smithsonian that hired G.E. Kincaid. G.E. Kincaid, see the partial truth already in the disinformation, is that G.E. Kincaid never worked for the Smithsonian. Right. He worked for someone else who worked for someone that worked for he, the Smithsonian. I think he worked for National Geographic. Well, and, and so the partial truth, you know, if we're really optimistic, is that they admit all of it, that they admit that further. And then that gets people going, oh, okay, okay, they just mislug, they misplaced the information. There's nothing else there, folks. See, yeah, they're telling the truth. Yeah, we're moving on. Right. Yeah. But but then that is going to open up a whole other can of worms, which you know brings me to like the whole Atlantis thing. You know, that that if Egyptians came from Atlantis, maybe the Egyptians here didn't actually come from Egypt, but they came straight out of Atlantis to here. And that would explain some of the mounds, places like Poverty Point, the American Stonehenge, etc. I do think that uh, we have proof. So when we talk about the denial and the stuff that's not being admitted to in plain sight, way at Laco, Mexico, Michael Cremo, Virginia Steen McIntyre, her work as a geologist with the group that established that anatomically correct humans had a campsite fire straight up human beings were in northern Mexico living at a site 275,000 years ago was the initial estimate but the reality is it was 300 to some estimates are a half million years that's a fact so I would say if we have 300,000 years of anatomically correct human history just on these continents uh, we are missing massive chapters. So we know from Solon the Greek, and I think, you know, they it's so funny. They, they credit uh, discernment and wisdom and the brilliance of the Greeks, uh, yet at the same time they say they're primitive and ignorant and they, 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 you know, they brush off some of their other information. And I don't think Solon was lying when, one, he's the one who brings back the story of Atlantis, but I do think there's some sacred numbers. So did somebody along the way maybe take the story and say, well, there was 10 major societies. There was 10 cities called Atlantis, Atlanteans. They had 10 mm-hmm. cities. Well, what if it was 20 or 100? What if an advanced human race did live in proximity to more primitive humans, but it became either less and less practical or those more advanced humans did not all get along after surviving whatever they did. And ultimately some of those groups did do war again, or just they, they, they clearly moved away from uh, primitive human exposure. They ultimately left that entirely in the dust. So there, there, there lies an epic story, but we know from Solon 
that not only do, does that Atlantean story come, but here he is with the Egyptian priest saying, look, we have a king's list. It says 36,000 years. I think it's very important that we take all native indigenous and dynastic people's legends and stories very seriously. And in this case, you know, where's the world 36,000 years ago? Well, we're, we've been crap kicked by Mount Toba about 34,000 years prior uh, from that. Uh, well, no, 38-ish, whatever, somewhere in there. Uh, we've already lost a significant time span from that super volcano. So here we are 38-ish thousand years later. Uh, the dynastic Egyptians that start to call themselves kings. If you're king, you have a kingdom. So how many hundreds or thousands of years did it take to get to the point where a group of people came across these giant abandoned advanced structures and said, uh, well, we're going to live amongst the gods and we're going to create a new world. And so would that be a few thousand people? And that you can't really. And remember, the old capital of the Egyptians was Tanis, which has been obliterated. I mean, straight up obliterated. So uh, wa was it uh, going pretty okay from 36,000 years ago for another 24,000, give or take, thousand years? They were rebuilding Egypt, and then the Younger Dryas impact happens, and you have Tanis being obliterated off the map. And another deluge. And again, the peoples that survive in Egypt, are they the people that, again, are identically genetically lineaged to the pre-Younger Dryas group? And, but, but they're in the same area, so let's say they are. And they, they start building again. And what we see as Mesopotamia and the Sumerians that really... We are looking at a solid, uh, the Minoans, uh, Malta, the Greeks, who said, also, we built, like the Temple of Delphi, it's polygonal masonry, shows the same construction methods that are found from Easter Island to megalithic ruins in Japan. This is very important for people to start hearing that it's not just Egypt to, you know, Sacsayhuaman. This is a worldwide global construction method. And is it this group that 36,000 years ago uh, coincides with, in quotes, Atlanteans? I guess where I'm going to try to skip here because I know we're short on time. But what we have is a society coming from Toba, having this digression with the younger Dryas kicking down further the global society that is now rebuilding for the umpteenth time, causing this more advanced society to just stay more quiet, more low-key, even more retreated, having also been impacted by the younger Dryas. And now a separation of these, again, legends and stories the Greeks, again, the gods built this before we did. The Incas, the gods were here before us. Same thing in Egypt. The gods built it. It's always the gods. Whoever we've forgotten that we're human have now become gods, and we deify it, we mystify it, we romanticize it, and our, our pragmatic look 
that, hey, there's a campfire site not too far in, uh, south of uh, the Grand Canyon that's 300,000 plus years old. It's not the first one. It's not the only one. And Gobekli Tepe and, oh, we found the first peoples. It's like, no, you have giant megalithic pillars with river rock between it. Again, we're looking at, by our own eyes, we're seeing the omissions in our history as we speak. So uh, most people, I think, instead of us going on the podcast and talking about what we're talking about now, they go do things and they talk about it after the fact because it's that age-old, back in the day, they didn't want to give away if they were going to go find a mummy. <laughs> nobody wants nobody wants to go look for soil. Nobody wants to go look for rock cut. You know, they want to find Machu Picchu. They don't they don't want to find one rock cut opening 2000 feet up at the Grand Canyon. It doesn't mean anything to them. But I think it's going to mean something to a lot of people really soon. I think we're going to go from the fringes to being some of the more popular uh conversations in the world what we're talking about right now. It's exciting. It is exciting. I, so, fortunately, because of time restraints, we got to wrap it up. Yep. Where can people find you, Jared? Here on Everything Imaginable, first and foremost, every month. <laughs> At least once a month. <laughs> yeah, right. We should be. We, we're going to get on that. We're going to get, we got new bumpers coming, more, more, more. Uh, but then you'll find me at notaliens.com. I have a member area. Uh, please join up there. There's an audio book of It's Not Aliens, Worse It's Us, Discovering Our Lost History. Uh, it is in uh, uh, re-editing and edition updating. Uh, hopefully that'll be done uh, for the written book, but it is an inclusive audio read on notaliens.com member area. I'm releasing chapters. Uh, there's uh, private interviews and research and photos and not aliens on YouTube and not aliens on Rockfin. That's in short where to find me right now. And I'll be sending you and everyone. I mean, I'll tell you right now, if we find anything, even on this, this preliminary expedition, find anything at all, I'll be doing 20 minute podcasts with everybody <laughs> <laughs> starting on everything imaginable. All right. Awesome. Well, I will post links to your website in the notes of this episode. And thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for getting us out before the, the trip. Of course, it's important. Yeah, I'm excited. Especially if you go missing. Then we have evidence. <sighs> I don't want that to be the case. So, uh, uh, stranger danger. I'm going to be checking in with everybody. You better. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Hang on for one second. Playing the outro. Change your life. Because remember.